and it is that, that summons of following God that we hear in song and that we heed and that we pay attention to uh, throughout this Lenten series. So I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew uh, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. Uh, Matthew's the first book in the New Testament, so if you get through some funny-sounding names like Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, and then you find more familiar ones like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, we'll be in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. This is the call of Matthew, and it fits with the, the themes of what we're pulling out throughout Lent, this period of 40 days and six Sundays that lead us up to Easter. The call of Matthew is one more story of transformation. And all of these transformation stories are encounters with Jesus that change people's lives or they show the change in their lives. So we can think of Nicodemus, who was a good church-going Pharisee, who encountered Jesus, and ever so slowly over time, it changed who he was. By the time of Jesus' death and resurrection, he was all in. We started the series by talking about uh, Philip and Nathaniel's conversation of, well, Nazareth, can anything good come from there? This skepticism that can be overcome by faith when, when we meet Jesus. We met the centurion last week who somewhere along the way, Scripture doesn't tell us exactly when and where, that, that centurion had already had a transforming encounter with God and, and followed Jesus with a faith that Jesus said he had not found even in all of Israel in this Roman centurion, this military officer. And today we come to the call of Matthew, a tax collector. And uh, lest you think that there's too much repetition, we will also have Zacchaeus, a tax collector. But even Matthew and Zacchaeus, um, who we'll get to later, um, they have a, a same encounter and yet different results of what happens, what they do with this encounter with Christ, how it transforms them. And we trust that to God's providence and direction. So before we read God's word together from Matthew chapter 9, let's pray. God, we could spend all of Lent and all of the year studying the stories in the scriptures where, where people were transformed and changed with their encounters with you. We could do all of this, but it would be for nothing if it didn't also transform us. And so as we read these four verses today, may it not just be an intellectual exercise that we learn about Matthew, though we should, that we study what changed in him, though we should. But may it also, by your Holy Spirit's work and activity, point us in how we also can change. Stir within us the same fire of transformation that an encounter with you has. For Lord, when we come to your word, we, we study the fire. And may it also burn within our hearts. And may this be you at work in our lives every day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, beginning at verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, 
why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, Is it not the healthy who need a doctor? It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There is an elderly woman, slightly frail, who had gone shopping at an outlet mall, and as stores were closing and it was getting dark, she walked back to her car and reached into her purse and found that her keys were not in her purse. And it was getting dark, and so a frantic um, pace of mind could have set in, but she said, God, I know that you will take care of me. And she looked around. She was trying to remember what stores she had gone in most recently, where her keys could have fallen out. But as the parking lot lights came on, she looked in her car and saw that her keys were, in fact, locked in her car, sitting on the seat. And she realized that they had undoubtedly fallen out of her purse when she had gotten out of her car. I'm told that's a thing that can happen. She got out. Um, She didn't panic, though, because she knew that God would provide an answer to her prayer, that God would provide a way in. And a man started walking through the parking lot, a big guy. And she said, oh, excuse me, sir, can you come over here? I think you're my answer to prayer. Lady, I don't think I'm your answer to prayer. Well, please come over here. But seeing that she was a frail woman, the gentleman walked over to her, and she said, oh, I I just know that you are my answer to prayer. I locked my keys in my car, and I can't get in. Do you know how to open a car with a coat hanger? I said, yes, in in fact, I do. She said, oh, well, good. I, I have a coat hanger here from something I just bought. So she handed this stranger who she had just met but knew that he was the answer to prayer. She handed him the coat hanger and said, can you use the coat hanger to get into my car? He said, yeah, I really can. So he bent the coat hanger how he needed to, and in a matter of seconds had unlatched the car door, and she was happily inside her car with her keys. And she said, I knew you were my answer to prayer, and I tell sir, how did you do that so fast? He kind of sheepishly said, well, to admit it, I just got out of jail a few days ago for breaking and entering and stealing vehicles. To which the woman said, it is so much like my God that in my time of need he would send a professional A professional what? If you need to get into your car, experience counts. And is a lot cheap. A coat hanger is cheaper than a locksmith. And so the woman's prayer was answered, and a man was delighted that his gifts and skills could be used in this redemptive manner to help someone in need and to be viewed not as a pariah of society, as an outsider who was disliked, but as somebody's answer to prayer, who knew how to do exactly what was necessary. Now, I tell that story because, for one, I think it's kind of funny. And for two, because it matches the sentiment of the call of Matthew. Matthew is a tax collector. He is a low person in Jewish society, though he is very wealthy in worldly standards. 
Matthew is not liked by his own people. He is not someone who is considered anyone's answer to prayer. Because the tax collectors of the day made themselves wealthy on corruption. The Romans used their own, they, Romans used Jewish citizens or wherever they were to reign over and be the tax collectors of their own people. So tax collectors were viewed as traitors, and more often than not, uh, studying the scriptures, we learn and understand that most tax collectors, how, how did you become one? Often these positions went to the highest bidder. You had some money, and you bought a position of power, and then you taxed your own people. Tax collectors were not popular because of this. They were viewed as traitors who had sided with Rome, and they were known to be dishonest, for they were able to collect whatever they asked for with some you know, Roman soldiers and guards behind them, and this is how they made themselves wealthy. They had nice houses, but not a lot of friends to invite over for dinner other than other tax collectors and, I mean, maybe their own mothers. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you love not only your own, are not even the tax collectors doing that? The tax collectors in Jesus' day also were disbarred from certain parts of Jewish society. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 5 was applied to them, which means that they were forbidden from being a witness in any legal matter of court. Because even though they were citizens, they were Jews, they were considered too unclean and probably too corrupt. So they were not allowed to be representatives in court, not full citizens of their own nation, because they were considered to be the same as robbers and murderers because they were viewed as robbers. Matthew was just such a tax collector. We don't know all of his story before this encounter. But what we do know that should be fascinating to us is that we are reading the call of Matthew in what book? The Gospel of Matthew. Now, there's some rabbit holes of scholarship that we could go through on authorship and this whole Matthew-Levi conundrum because sometimes people are called slightly different things in different points in Scripture. But to think that we are reading the call of Matthew from Matthew's Gospel, Matthew, who was a tax collector, who knew how to keep really good records of things, who knew the Old Testament pretty well because he was a good Jewish kid growing up who became a tax collector. So he also knew the Gentiles. He was educated. He was well-read. He knew how to write well. And Jesus took one look at Matthew and said, I want you on my team. I want you to follow me. I want you, the one who no one else cares for because your skill set of being a tax collector was developed in a corrupt and horrible way and you have grown to be a just bad, sinful person. Jesus looks past all of that and says, I know what Matthew is capable of and I want him on my team. Jesus recruits Matthew to follow him. This would be shocking for any rabbi to want a tax collector to join their company. But Jesus, as we've seen through the other stories so far, particularly with Nathaniel and Philip, Jesus can see through all of the layers of our life, and Jesus can see beyond to what we're really capable of. What is it that you're good at? Jesus sees your heart and your skill and says, I want you on my team. 
this alone is a compelling part of the gospel. That when we read Jesus' encounter with people, he's asking them to follow him. And to know that the same is true of us, that, that Jesus sees who we are, and Jesus knows full well the things that we've done wrong. Jesus knows the times that we've messed up. And yet it doesn't change this fervor by which he says, I want you on my team. Matthew is a cutthroat tax collector, maybe a greedy business person, all the other things that we can imagine, and yet Jesus wants him. And Matthew's ability to keep records and to know truth from mistruth, he's manipulated that over the years to become wealthy. And yet here in this moment, he's being called to follow Jesus. And it's his ability to keep records, to keep facts, to keep things straight that will become the gospel of Matthew. It is the story of Jesus as captured by one person. And Matthew, being a tax collector who is redeemed by God's grace, is someone who understands radical obedience and radical grace. In the gospel of Matthew, we have phrases like, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, this high bar to raise up to. And yet we also have this radical grace of forgiveness of our past being expunged away because Jesus says, I just need you to follow me. Matthew is recruited by Jesus, not in spite of who he is, but because of who he is at the core of his being. And his skills are put to good use. And he becomes one of Jesus' followers. But this transformation, well, one thing that strikes me is just where this happens in the gospel. We are in Matthew chapter 9, which means a few things have already happened. Jesus seems to have already called his first round draft picks, if you will. The Sermon on the Mount has already been given. People are already being cleansed of leprosy and demons are being cast out. Jesus has already done quite a bit. And it almost seems like Matthew is late to the party. He's a late bloomer in the timeline of the Gospels. If you go back and read Matthew 1 through 8 and think about everything that's already happened, everything that Jesus has already done, and yet I ask you this, is Matthew any less of a disciple than any of the others who follow Jesus? A lot's happened, and yet Matthew's called in. He joins in with everyone else following Jesus. I wonder if we ever feel like we're a little bit late to the party or that we're stepping into something that, that everyone else kind of already knows what's going on. And, and what, what value might we have in the midst of all of this? Well, I wonder if Matthew had to ask some questions of those around him because he hasn't been around for a bunch of the stuff that Jesus has done. I wonder if Matthew saw the disciples and the teachings of Jesus with fresh eyes that the other disciples have kind of gotten used to at this point. They're kind of in a rhythm of doing the things that they do with Jesus. And Matthew has to play catch up. He has to ask questions. I wonder if sometimes Matthew, being as rigid as he is, as we read through the rest of how the gospel is just conveyed, I wonder if there was times when Matthew was like, wait, Paige, shouldn't this have made a difference in our lives? I also wonder if Matthew, being a tax collector, was able to connect and be an evangelist to people that the fishermen were not 
able to connect with. Jesus calls a fascinatingly diverse group of folks to follow him from all different walks of life. And I wonder if there is some other folks along the way that, that we don't read about that Matthew was the connect person, who he understood what it was like to be disliked by everyone. He understood what it was like to be a tax collector, a pariah of society, and if he was the right evangelist for those people. I think Jesus thought ahead on exactly that type of question. There's something maybe a little bit more concrete um, that I can think of too, just in how things work even here at North Holland. There are some Matthews here, and there's also some Jameses and Peters and Marys and Marthas. Here's what I mean by there are some Matthews here. When I was in seminary, when I was an intern here, um, I had to write up papers about my teaching church internship site. So yeah, for three years I was studying all of y'all. But one thing uh, that I wrote out of my observations was the uh, composition of leadership at North Holland. And this happened, um, and actually in 2019 it had happened again, where of, of 18 people on consistory, six of them were lifelong members who could probably trace their lineage a few generations. Six people who grew up here who have always been here. That's kind of cool, and that doesn't happen just anywhere. Six had married in at some point over the last 30 or so years. And so there was this transferring in. And six had been in North Holland for eight years or less. And the next year, 10 years or less. You know, as people are here longer, we had to average it out. But the composition of leadership there told me something interesting about the place, is that Matthew, late to the party, still has a lot to offer. And that at North Holland, it was not just a close-knit guarding of power by those who had been, but all different perspectives of North Holland. People who knew the history because they had lived it and been around for it. People who had been around for a good chunk of it and had seen it, but also had grown up differently. And folks who came from somewhere else and were maybe aware, maybe had some questions. There's always those question askers who are just new, and they're not hostile, they're not after anything, but they're just like, what, what do we do here? How do we do that here? Why do we do it this particular way? And when that composition comes together, there is really helpful tension held between tradition and knowledge and not reinventing the wheel or throwing out baby with bathwater and fresh understanding, fresh eyes. And whenever we explain tradition, we remember the original meaning of it to begin with. That's part of North Holland, is that there are Matthews here, and that all of them, each and every person in the gospel, are lifelong members and our newcomers all have a helpful perspective to offer. It just depends on what you're grounded in, if you've got the history or if you've got fresh eyes. This is how we work together as a church, and Jesus gives us this example by not keeping it too close, but by calling Matthew, even in Matthew chapter 9, knowing that he's going to have some catch-up to do. And I wonder how all the other disciples benefited from Matthew. I think of, I mean, 
I'll let you decide what you really think of this, but even of the search team that hired me, there was a few people there who had not been here all that long. I'll let you determine if they had an important role to play or, well, if they made a mistake, then you can't hold it against them because they were new. But it seems to have been so far so good, I hope. But Matthew, as a follower of Jesus, immediately gets up and follows Jesus. There's something different that we'll talk about with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus stays as a tax collector, but he changes his ways and stays where he is. We'll get to that later, but that's also pretty compelling. Zacchaeus stays and changes. Matthew gets up and leaves. He goes and follows Jesus. And as far as from the scriptures go, there's no other hint of anything else, just that he got up and followed him. I do like the way this has been portrayed in The Chosen, um, the covering of Jesus' life, um, where there's this tension held with Matthew. It's well done. But here in Matthew 9, we just get, follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. This is more remarkable than we might take for granted in just a one verse, moving on, moving forward. Follow me, and he got up and followed him. But if we think about what's happening here, it is like a nuclear reaction, both fission and fission and fusion. Fission being the act of pulling things apart at an atomic level, and fusion, the act of putting things together, fusing them together at an atomic level. Scientifically, we understand how this happens, but at this soul level, this is nothing short of a nuclear change. Jesus says, follow me, and immediate fission happens. That Matthew gets up, leaves the tax collector booth, shuts down where he's at, and follows Jesus and is moving on. This is remarkable when we remember that Matthew has a good position. Yeah, a lot of people don't like him. Yeah, he's not popular, but you know what? You can deal with that. He has money and status. And also, he has worked hard to get this position as a tax collector. He probably had to pay a lot of money to get this position. And now, he's just giving it all up. Everything that he fought for, every way that he has established himself, is gone. It is immediate nuclear fission at the soul level that Matthew walks away from his way of life at the simple words of Jesus, follow me. I want you on my team. And so he does. And there's also fusion. Matthew is not left without an identity, but he immediately has a new identity to learn and understand, cling to and grow into. He is fused in with the Jesus group. And from here on out, that's who he is. There's no going back for Matthew. He has been completely separated from one way of life, though would still be a great person to connect with folks who are living that way, and he is suddenly fused to a new way of life. This is radical transformation. At the soul level, it is nothing short of nuclear. And I wonder, in this Lenten time, what is it in repentance that, that we that we focus on Jesus as we get closer to Easter, that if we do this work well, we celebrate with a more joyous and profound Easter. 
what is it that we need to be able to separate from? In our own life, what, what areas of repentance are we saying, you know what, I'm like Matthew. I'm really attached to this. This, this is who I am. And that Jesus would say, follow me. What would it separate you away from? And if you did get separated away from some things in life that we cling to, what would that open you up to be able to fuse yourself to? Now, it doesn't always mean quitting your job and walking away. That's why we are kind of preemptively holding this tension with a Matthew and a Zacchaeus. But, but with Matthew, there is a separation that happens, a turning away from one and turning towards something else and something better. It could be the habits that we talk about. It, it could be habitual sin and disobedience in our life. It also could be just, you know what? I don't, I don't need this entertainment. Maybe it's the just kind of day-to-day concerns or fears that we have that we try to turn away from. I don't know exactly for each and every one of us what our fission and fusion would be. But what I do know is that it is nothing short of a nuclear power in our soul. To be separated away takes a great amount of energy. And to be fused to something else takes a great amount of energy. And we see both in Matthew, almost instantaneously. But not everybody's so keen on this. Not everyone would like it. In fact, I wonder if some of Jesus' own disciples were not thrilled with this new pick for the team. But especially from a distance, it's the Pharisees, the good old Pharisees, who are watching, and they see Matthew got up and followed Jesus. And then Jesus goes and has dinner at Matthew's house, which was probably a pretty nice house. And many tax collectors and sinners, so a lot of people, the house is big enough to hold them, are here. Many of them are here. This is a nice place to be hosted. Also, it's just interesting that sinner is like an occupation. We've got tax collectors and sinners. Um, Just kind of an interesting juxtaposition of words. But it's just meant to be a catch-all category. You've got tax collectors. Well, we know what makes them bad. And then we've got all the other people who we know are bad too, right? This happens in our society. And And the Pharisees are like, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And it's Jesus who hears this. It wasn't addressed to Jesus. This seems to be, if you use a little bit of gospel imagination, one of those moments where like they're trying to corner off one of Jesus' people, and then Jesus like overhears it from across the room and is like, hey, I'm going to respond to that, even though the question wasn't asked to me, it's about me. And he tells us, it's not healthy people who need a doctor. It's those who are sick. I didn't come for you who are righteous. I came for the sinners. I came not for those who think they're already self-sufficient and good to go. I came for those who know that they have a need. I didn't come for those people who say, you know what, I've got all my places to fit in. I'm good to go. I came for the outcasts who aren't sure if they fit in anywhere to say, no, no, you do fit in here. And I'm going to invite you to a meal to show that you belong here and This is the call of Matthew that gets the Pharisees' attention. And Jesus spits out one last good word at them from Hosea chapter 6. 
go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, once again, Jesus is just being a little bit sassy here. Go and learn what this means is a common rabbinic teaching of what rabbis would teach their children. Go and learn what this means. These are Pharisees. They're like champion Bible memory memorizers. They know what it means. They know the verse. They know where it's from. But Jesus says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. When he says, go and learn what this means, he says, you know it in your head, but put it into practice. I want mercy, not sacrifice. Maybe you gave up something for Lent. If that's great, if that was a good sacrifice. But if it doesn't change anything in our heart, if it doesn't turn us towards mercy and grace and compassion and a better understanding of who Christ is, then it's an exercise, but not an exercise that grows us. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want your heart to change. I don't want you to just study fire from an intellectual level. I want you to feel its heat. I don't want you to just know that transformation happened with Jesus. We want that transformation for ourselves. This is a simple gospel of Jesus looking at someone who knew their sin, who knew where they didn't fit in, and heard the simple words, follow me. I want you on my team. Separate out from everything else. Fuse yourself to my gospel, to my good news. Because I know that you're someone who knows your need. And I'll show you a different and a better place to fit in. And it's no kingdom quite like any you know. Matthew is told that he fits in in the kingdom of heaven place of light and of word and of feast and of water. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Follow me, says our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, when you call to us in our hearts, may your summons echo true when you call our name. When you say, follow me, may we be willing and ready to go, to follow, to give up what we need to give up to make that possible, and to take on what we need to take on with you at our side. Lord, we thank you that as we come to you, we know that we are people who need mercy from you, and we find it in you, Jesus. We know that we're not righteous on our own. We are sinful on our own nature, and you call us righteous because we've been washed by you. We know that by nature we could be greedy or stingy, but that you call us to be generous. Lord, all of this is your grace at work within our lives. Thank you for the ways in which you changed Matthew. Thank you also for the ways in which you changed us. May you continue to change us now and forever.